1: This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor,
0: apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. What you believe about God is the most serious issue in your life.
1: Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Bill. I'm glad you've joined me. And welcome to a new series of messages from Pastor Jeff on the theme of Awake. In the Western world, we teach our kids that prayer, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. But Pastor Jeff says we should really be teaching, Lord, help me wake before I die. In this episode, Pastor Jeff is trying to help us wake up to the reality of God, life and the universe and to trust or take a leap even when it scares us. On that note... Let's get into the message now. We're in Mark chapter 11, here on Today with Jeff Vines.
0: A few years ago, I heard a story about these two students who were applying to get into an engineering institute. So they go together, they're pretty good buddies, they both want to get into the institute the first student goes in for the interview and the interviewer says to him look i've uh, i've just got one question for you there is a train moving at a high rate of speed but it's getting very hot in your compartment what would you do he said well i would, I would open the window he said that's good now the window is about 1.5 square meters the compartment is about 12 cubic meters the train is moving at a pace of about 60 kilometers per hour and the wind is blowing outside at around 15 kilometers per hour. How long will it take the compartment to cool down? He said, I have no idea. I got no idea whatsoever. He said, okay, I'm sorry to tell you, but you failed Send in the next guy. So he's walking out disappointed. His buddy passes him on the way in as he's on the way out. and He said, look, what did he ask you? And he said, man, I don't know. He asked me some question about... A train is moving very fast and it's getting very hot in the compartment. What would you do? I told him I'd roll down the window. He said, it's 1.5 square meters, 12 cubic meters is the compartment. The train's moving 60 kilometers per hour. The wind's blowing 15 kilometers per hour. How long would it take the compartment to cool down? I have no idea. So he goes in. The interviewer says, okay, next. I have just one question for you. The train is moving at a high rate of speed. It's getting very hot in your compartment. What would you do? he thought for a moment to himself and he said, well, I'd I'd take my coat off. He said, yeah, but it's stifling hot. He said, well, I'd take my shirt off. He said, no, 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 it's burning hot. He said, well, I'd take my trousers off. He said, young man, what if you're going to die? And the boy said, I don't care. I'm going to die. There's no way I'm going to open that window. (laughs) (laughs) We're in this new series called Awake. Awake. And Jewish rabbis say that you Americans teach your children to pray, if I die, before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What you should be teaching them to pray is help me wake before I die. Help me to wake up to the reality of life and God and the purpose and meaning of this universe. And I think that so many people are afraid to open the window because it's very confusing on the other side. But there's no more important window to open than the window to Jesus. He's the redeemer and the revealer of who God is. And if you're going to make sense of this life and this world, you're going to have to know who God is and the purpose and meaning of your life. In 1952, philosopher Mortimer Adler co-edited a 55-volume series in the Encyclopedia Britannica titled The Great Books of the Western World. And in that encyclopedia series, the longest article and all those encyclopedias was on the topic of God. And they asked him, why did you give more space to God than any other topic? And he said, matter of factly, it was because there are more consequences for life and action following from the affirmation or denial of God than from any other basic question. What you believe about God is the most serious issue in your life. Now, If the existence of God is so important, doesn't it follow then that we need to know what it is that God wants from us? (laughs) I mean, to acknowledge that God exists is one thing, but then to ask questions like, okay, God, why am I here? What's the meaning of my life? What do you want from me? Now, this is the beauty of this series, and I want to hit it from the get-go. And most of you will recall we did a series called Remarkable a few years ago, where we dealt with Mark 1 through 10. We're finishing that. Mark 11 through the end of the chapter now, as we look at the final events of Jesus' life, what is happening in the life of Jesus? What's he trying to communicate in his last days? So now stay with me. You got to hear this first, this next 30 seconds, you have to hear, okay? Here's what we're doing. We're going to begin this beautiful journey to wake us up to the reality of life. And in this first message, we're going to answer four questions. Number one, who is God really? What's he like? Two, What does God expect from his people? Three, what God promises from his people or to his people. And four, what God empowers in his people. Okay. Who is God? What's he really like? What does he expect from his people? What does God promise his people and what God empowers within his people? Now, the reason we're doing that is because that first section of Mark 11 answers those questions in just a few verses as it combines, as it juxtapositions three events in the life of Jesus. The triumphal entry, second, the cleansing of the temple, and then third, the cursing of the fig tree. They're all in that first section. And those three answer the questions. What is God really like? What does God expect from his people? What does God promise? And what is he working inside of us? What is he empowering us to do? Okay, you ready? Number one, triumphal entry. It answers the question what God is really like. This is very interesting because here is Jesus and he rides into the city on a colt or a donkey. Now, why does he do that? You've seen the photos of Palm Sunday and the branches waving up and down, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ancient kings and leaders, emperors, often made grandiose entrances into the city. Chariots, parades, often lifted up, exalted on these expensive couches, platforms, Marched through the city gates. <laughs> and now here's Jesus. He's making his entrance, and it's on a polos, is the Greek word, which means colt or donkey. So here we have Jesus, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, with all this miraculous power. John 11, he tells Lazarus to come forth. He told the winds and the waves, Peace be still. John 1 1, we're told in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word. Became flesh, so here we have God riding on a colt. And if you're like me, the first time I read this years ago, it's like it's like the God of the universe is riding in on an animal more appropriate for a hobbit. Have you seen those little Fiats? Imagine Jesus in a Fiat (laughs) rather than a BMW 5 Series. I mean, something's not. What's happening here? Now this is crucial. Jesus combines character traits that could never be combined in any other person. Traits that we would consider mutually exclusive. Jesus combines them in ways that you would never think possible in the same person. Jesus deliberately juxtapositions majesty and meekness, power and weakness, strength and humility. In fact, in Zechariah 9, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus made his entrance into the city, we read these words. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, dot, dot, lowly and riding on a donkey. (laughs) Righteous and victorious on a donkey. Stay with me for a second. In Revelation 5, John is told to look up to the throne to see the lion. But when he looks up, he doesn't see the lion. He sees a lamb. So you have the lion who excels in strength. There's majesty in his appearance. In Zimbabwe, the Shona word for a lion is Simba. It's the same word as power. Power, strength, they're synonymous. And yet a lamb excels in meekness. It's sacrifice for human food and clothing. But Jesus is described as both. Why? Someone has said in Jesus Christ, there is a conjunction of diverse excellencies as otherwise would be incompatible in the same subject. What does that mean? It's a lot of words that mean this infinite highness, infinite accessibility, infinite justice, infinite grace, glory, humility, majesty, transcendent meekness, absolute sovereignty, perfect submission. He is a lion. He is a lamb. He is a rock. He is a pearl. He's a mighty captain. He's a tender lover. He's a fragile flower. He's the mighty tree of life. You say, Pastor Jeff, that's all interesting, but what does it have to do with me? everything, because God is powerful, and he could dazzle you with power, and that would only bring fear upon you. When Jesus rides in on that donkey, he communicates. Remember, he's trying to tell us what God is like. These are the last events of his life, and he's trying to remind us there's infinite highness and infinite accessibility. He's telling you and me what God is really like. He is a God of relationship. He wants his dwelling place among us. He wants to set up camp with us. He wants to tabernacle with you. He doesn't want to be transcendent and far away. He wants to come near. He wants to be experienced. Most people that I meet that reject the God of the Bible say, you know, if I were God, and that should stop you right there, but if I were God, I'd be more thundering and powerful. Think about it. What if you said this to God? God, if you'd come down and do away with all the people who are causing problems in my life, and make my life the way I want it to be, then it would inspire me and I would follow you. Yeah, you might do so, but there are two problems. Number one, if you did, you would follow him out of fear and fear alone. You'd see his power and say, whoa. The second thing is, what if somebody else prays that God take away their problems and you're their problem? (laughs) What does he do now? You think you want a thundering Messiah, but you don't. And God knows this. So yes, he has the infinite power, the omnipotence, the omniscience, all of that. But because he wants relationship, he comes to you as a suffering servant. Because only that kind of self-sacrifice compels love. If God truly desires relationship, he must come in love. And I think deep down inside, the human heart knows that. So here is Jesus, the God of the universe, riding in on a colt, screaming internally that the way to God Is through a response to his self-sacrifice of love. Now, quickly, we move on to the second event, from the triumphal entry to the temple. And now we ask the question, what does God expect from his people then? Let me read it for you. I'm in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. First time I read this, I think, man, Jesus must really despise swindlers. But then again, who doesn't? But that's not the real issue. You know, it's taken me a long time to see this. Because when Jesus does this, he enters the place in the temple that is the only place where non-Jews can enter the place of the Gentiles. It was the largest part of the temple to accommodate the Gentiles, but it was also a place during Jesus' time of enormous transaction. In fact, Josephus tells us that on any given Passover weekend, they would actually slaughter, buy and sell, and use over 250,000 lambs on one Passover weekend. So you think of all the tumultuous trading that would happen on the New York Stock Exchange floor. That would be a, a faint whisper compared to what's happening here. And so, and this is so crucial, Jesus sees this, this madhouse, and he seems so passionate about course correction. I want you to hear me on this. We could talk about this forever, but it's a good time to think about this during this season of our lives. What's Jesus communicating? Jesus is saying, this is the place where the Gentiles are supposed to find God and you've turned it into a place of transaction. He says, "Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. I don't know about you, when I think of the application, it makes me sad. Imagine how those in the outer courts, the Gentiles, the non-Christians in our world, feel about us when they hear us talk and then see us live. Just one example, we talk about Jesus, the Lord of heaven, who leaves his glory in heaven and makes himself nothing in the likeness of a servant. He humbles himself, becomes obedient, obedient, even unto death, even death on a cross, but then they watch as pastors in the media and other Christ followers store up treasures on earth and stockpile and hoard. Do you see the duplicity? Imagine what they feel when they see pastors dressed in shoes that cost a thousand dollars. Or own their own private jets. Or build multi-million dollar mansions. It's not about how much money we Christ followers make. It's about what we do with it when we get it. And the Gentiles are watching in the outer courts. And it's this duplicitous message that has caused us to lose our voice and culture to the Gentiles. They're very suspicious that they are just, and we are just, transaction driven. Churches are supposed to be places where people find God. Not where they learn how to be rich or avoid physical sickness or get everything they've ever wanted, and discover how to dress in such a way that is hip and fashioned? Do we really think that being cool and attractive is the thing that matters most, then how can we harmonize that with Jesus? What is the gospel? You remember what Jesus said in Luke 6? "Be careful when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that we have a tendency to gather ourselves around people who would tell us what we want to hear and dress like we dress and act like we act. But when they challenge us, we don't like it. The false prophets tell you what you want to hear. The real prophet of God gives you a spiritual challenge and you know transformation needs to take place in your life. I've been thinking about this for a long time and you'll notice I've just kept quiet for such a long time. But like I said a few weeks ago, it's time for pastors now to speak up. At the risk of being called judgmental, it's time that we do stand up for what is right. I've heard people say, and even some of my pastoral friends, we got to be like them to win them. What a farce. Jim Caviezel recently made an incredible speech. You know, Jim Caviezel played the part of Jesus in the passion, but he made an incredible speech getting all kinds of hits on YouTube. I listened to it. There's one line that stood out. He said, you are made to stand out, not fit in. And I've heard people say, but, but Jeff, wasn't the Apostle Paul all things to all men? Let me tell you how we use that and then how Paul used that. Here's how we use it. The world pursues wealth, so we got to look wealthy. The world pursues or values sex, so we got to look sexy. The world is impressed with power, so we got to look powerful. The Apostle Paul used it this way. You value wealth, so I will live among you without taking anything from you, and I will influence you in my poverty. You value sex, so I will teach you the origination of sex and the purpose for which God designed it. So you will know how it's meant to be used and the gift of God that it is. You are impressed with power. I will show you how the omnipotent God gave up his glory and power and lived among us. In short, we become like the world to draw it in and thus lose our distinction among the people in the court of the Gentiles. Paul the apostle became more like Jesus with a knowledge and understanding of the world in which he lived, that he could draw people away from worldly pursuits in the pursuit of God. He became all things to all men in this sense. He met them where they were to take them where they ought to be. And we pastors have got to stop avoiding culturally Offensive passages of Scripture. Let me read one to you. First Timothy two. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Man, is that culturally offensive? It's only because a good hermeneutic. Unless you have a good hermeneutic, you'll miss the point. What's he saying? This is not a passage telling women what to wear and what not to wear. It's a passage that says, men, go hard after humility, realizing that everything you have comes from God. And women, don't worry so much about what you look like on the outside. Be more concerned with who you are on the inside. That's the point of the passage. Russell Moore said this, the church is bleeding out the next generation. Not because culture is so opposed to the church's fidelity to the truth, but just the reverse. The culture often does not reject us because they don't believe the church's doctrinal or moral teachings, but because they have evidence that the church doesn't believe its own doctrinal and moral teachings. Duplicity. When Jesus saw the duplicity in the temple, this is a place where people are supposed to find God and it's become a place of transaction. He was angered. He's always angered when God is misrepresented by those who claim to be on the inside. And the American church has become the court of the Gentiles because it is transaction driven. And the world sees that and says, no, thanks. I will not be part of your spreadsheet. So they come to Jesus and they ask him. It's amazing when he's doing this, the religious leaders say, what are you doing? Why are you messing with our transactions? Jesus responds. Jesus responds. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. This is a place where I want people to meet God. I want all the nations to discover my love and concern for them. Look at what happens in verse 18. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, the fact that they feared Jesus is connected with the fact the whole crowd was amazed. They were astonished. Well, what were they amazed at? Well, the Jews believe that when the Messiah comes, he will purge the temple of all unbelievers. Isn't that interesting? When Messiah comes, no more more Gentile riffraff in the temple. They're going to be kicked out. And here is Jesus advocating for the foreigner. He's saying, I want the immigrant, the Democrat, the Republican, the rebel, the pagan, the prostitute, the politician to find God in the house of the Lord. And when the house of the Lord strays from its purpose, its people... And nations stop finding God. When it becomes a political voice, when it becomes transaction-oriented, when it becomes known for anything other than where to find God, it's in trouble. When it sees the world as them and us, when it loses heart for those who are far from God, I think God's heart breaks, God's anger boils, and the church must go through a time of sifting and purification. And I think sometimes God looks down at the church and he weeps because the nations have turned away because of our duplicity. Now, hold on a second. Wait, this is not the whole story about us, is it? This is not indicative of all the houses of worship, just sometimes, unfortunately, those in the media. But think about it. Remember what Billy Graham said to Larry King when Larry King asked him about all the preachers who had fallen? And Billy Graham says, you know, 10,000 planes take off and land every day. You'll never hear their stories. But when one crashes, that's the one you hear about. Think of, the, think of Billy Graham, a life above reproach. My goodness. Think of Rick Warren right here in Southern California. I don't know anyone who represents the Christian faith any better, who has lived an above reproach life. My friend, Danny Gugliomucci in Australia. I've gotten to know him over the years. An amazing man of God who's done amazing work. Matt Chandler. Some of you young people will be familiar with him. An amazing man of God. Chuck Swindoll in his 80s. My daughter tells me she would still rather listen to him than me. <laughs> Quite frankly, I would rather listen to him than me. So we've we got things in common there. And my question is, if duplicity disproves the Gospel, does consistency show its legitimacy? Because if you want duplicity, you can find it. But if you want consistency, you can find that too.
1: You're listening to Today with Jeff Vines. And Pastor Jeff has covered a bit there already. What is God really like? What does God expect from His people? To be a light, to propel people towards God by living distinct lives? And in our next episode, Pastor Jeff will get into what God promises.
0: What is God really like? A powerful God who becomes a suffering servant to compel you into relationship through self-sacrifice. What does God expect from His people to be a light unto the Gentiles? To compel people toward God by their distinct lives to practise what they preach? Quickly, third, what does God promise? I want you to stay with me here because the last point is very short. This is that one overarching truth that the passage teaches, okay? Because when Jesus cleanses the temple, do you know what He's really doing? He's throwing out the old sacrificial system.
1: Thanks again for joining me. I look forward to your company next time on Today with Jeff Vines. Today.